think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 17 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 18th episode. Uh, I'm Laurent Carboneau. I'm Vincent Rainville. And uh, this week we've got, uh, it was kind of a slow news week apart from some uh, some stuff with the defense minister that uh, I don't think either of us are really qualified to talk about and we don't really know a thing about that, so we're not going to talk about it. Um, instead, en- enough, enough has been said. And, yeah, exactly. You can check any Canadian news outlet in the last week and get your fill of uh, Stolen Valor, Canadian edition. Um, we actually do want to talk about the, uh, we've kind of been updating you on the uh, the ongoing filibuster in the Procedure and House Affairs Committee about the proposed liberal changes to uh, the standing order of the House that will sort of reform, well, the, in, the intent is to reform the way Parliament works uh, through a variety of changes, including not having Friday sittings, making you more family-friendly. I think there's some other ones too. Prime, Prime Minister's Question Time, Minister's Electronic questions. Voting is also being proposed. There's, there's a whole handful of them that we've previously discussed. And these have been held up in the Procedure and House Affairs Committee, which is one of the committees of the House of Commons that sort of deals with this kind of thing for 80 hours, I think, of sitting time. Yes, until the, uh, the tire, the filibuster was broken. Indeed. So what happened is a bit of a procedural trick, and it was actually well done by the Liberals, and that it was a conservative motion. This is kind of, yeah, this is a conservative motion on a question of privilege about MPs' access to the Hill on budget day that Lisa, conservatives... Uh, yeah, I believe it was Lisa Ray got blocked. We, we yeah. mentioned this one previously as well. Got blocked by the PM's empty motorcade. And so the House has been debating a question yeah. of privilege for actually quite a while on that. Yeah, and basically they forwarded it to the committee with a conservative, like, amendment, I think, or something. Like, part of the... Mo- I'm sorry, it was just part of the motion to have it have precedence when it comes to the committee. No, that's just the nature of... Oh, sorry. Yes, right. That's of questions privilege of privilege in general. Yeah, of course. precedence over everything. That's my mistake, indeed. Etienne is correct. Uh, but that means that it's now coming to this committee, and basically, because it has precedence, just knocks whatever's on the agenda off, or, like, puts it further back in line. So this 80-hour filibuster is now... Ended. At least ended until like the question comes back up, but it seems like the liberals are basically trying to introduce it, go through the house, or like have something else go through the house that will circumvent the uh, committee yeah. process here. Yeah, the liberals have effectively. So the reason it's in procedural and house affairs committee proc is because the liberal government had put forward a motion to study these changes. <coughs> Sorry, not the liberal government, but a liberal MP, and so this MP has now expressed that he's going to withdraw yeah. that motion. And that was Scott Sims of Newfoundland. Scott, yeah, Scott Sims is going to withdraw the motion, effectively ending what is being filibustered. Right. And then they're going to take it to the House and try and put through the changes they want through the House instead yeah. of doing it as a study through PROC yeah. initially. So procedural wrangling and skirmishing aside, this was a kind of a good, good piece of work on, on everyone's behalf here, very clever. Uh, what do you think of this kind of means for the government's reform agenda? Like, is this a good thing? I mean, there's there's a few things I take away here, starting with the motion of privilege that's being debated in the House. I, I would just note how much time it's taken up in yeah. terms of House scheduling as we push towards the end of the... Yeah, because, uh, yeah, like, th- this is an important piece of context to note here. The House rises for the summer in late June, and there just are so many hours of daylight between now and then that they get to use for this kind of thing, and they I think they want to have it wrapped before then. Yeah, and if you watched, uh, if you turn on CPAC anytime on Monday... They were debating this question of privilege. <coughs> just cut your sneeze out. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. No was, just keep going though. Um, they were debating this question of privilege, and that like you could just feel the hours of the legislative agenda before session just ticking away. Yeah. And so this uh, question of privilege is going to get pushed through to proc, and now that the filibuster is sort of out of the way, 
like it, it's better for Proc to be I'm going to use this say wasting their time or using their time uh, to debate this question of privilege than to get held up indefinitely in this filibuster. Yeah. Can I just say a, a fun word about the etymology of filibuster? Go for it. So it comes from the Spanish filibustero, which means like <laughs> a, a, yeah, it's great. Which means like a, a buccaneer. I can't or, take you seriously. No, it's good. It's this great etymology. So it comes from the Spanish filibustero. Uh, which kind of means like, uh, and it's been used historically mostly for like a filibustering expedition would be like these like unauthorized American expeditions into like Mexico or the Caribbean to sort of like take land for the U.S. It's like unlicensed conquering basically. Okay. But the ultimate root actually comes from the Dutch vrijbooter, which means freebooter or pirate or corsair, however you want to put that. But it's sort of like this interesting chain of uh, piratical metaphors and. Uh, it's a very, uh, very kind of swashbuckling heritage in that word. All right, I will. Uh, I'll take your word for it. No, it's good. Uh, I really, really enjoy. It. That's. I'm so glad filibuster has like stayed in the discourse and like now it means something a lot less fun than it used to, but still. Yeah, much, much less exciting. Yeah. Returning to proc for a minute, so I, I think it's interesting. Uh, you may, you may have seen the clips from it. We'll definitely include it at some point in this episode. Um, so Scott Reed is a conservative MP. Yeah. Uh, has sort of been this, uh, the point man on the electoral reform yeah, file. Yeah, like any sort of Democratic reform file, like Scott Reed typically will like kind of yeah, point he, on. Yeah, he's the conservative critic for Democratic reform. Yeah, um, so and like actually cares about it, so it wasn't the minister in the last government. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, now that, that's... <laughs> I'm going to set that comment aside. I'm going to let that one slide. Um, so he's also on, obviously, the parliamentary reform uh, side of this. And, and so what happened was the liberals opened the committee and then immediately went to shut it down and yeah. end the filibuster. Like, within minutes, there were some NDP members of the committee who hadn't even entered the room yet. Namely, David Christofferson. Which is, like, considered a very... Like, That's super rude. Like Rude, yeah. unparliamentary, sort of goes against sort of the customs of the House. Dickish. Um, so as soon as the chair sort of indicated what he was about to do, uh, Scott Reed went to call a point of order. And as, as we've, dis or sorry, a point of privilege. Yeah. And as we've discussed, points of privilege are supposed to circumcede uh, absolutely anything else being discussed. Yeah. And the chair ignored that and closed the meeting and then literally ran out of the room afterwards. It is. To, to the shouts of Scott Reed. Yeah. So not, not one of the finer points in the parliamentary democracy here in Canada, especially on behalf of the liberals who promised to do things differently. Yeah, it was a point of order, by the way. Was it? It was a point of order, yeah. Okay. But this still has to be recognized by the chair. like, And it was like super, 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 like, yeah, unparliamentary, dickish, rude, however you want to put it, for the chair to, like, very obviously see that this point of order is, like, going on, and then just not even, like, look at the guy. And nope. Just adjure nope. Yeah, that's, Gav like... Gavel drop. Yeah, that's, like, unbelievably bad. Uh, I don't think even the last government did anything that egregious at any point in the house transitioning slightly to um the house this week uh so for the second or third time uh trudeau stood up on wednesday ah yeah and took all the questions um so this is sort of the concept of prime minister's question time from yeah. the uk uh, that's being ported over to canada um obviously the opposition particularly the conservatives have been opposed to it uh under the assumption that once you codify this It'll also sort of backdoor codify that the prime minister is only expected to be in the house right. on Wednesdays. That's that's the argument that they're pushing. Yeah. Um, Which and I, as I've said before, like I think frankly, like 
the idea that every minister, including the prime minister, should be in the house every day to respond to like inane or hostile questions for an hour is like not the best use of their time. But point granted that that would probably like codify that pretty solidly. Unfortunately, they're not tyrants, and democracy has a price. I, I, and, yeah. and if that price is an hour a day, I'm, I'm happy. It's for way it to be paid. more than an hour a day. We've talked about this before, but there's so much time that goes into question period prep that it just seems to me to be like an unreasonable use of time for people who are like very busy and actually have important work to do. Like, I don't think it's without value, and I think like you know, there's I think we could find a way that's probably like mutually agreeable and beneficial for you know like the opposition to ask questions and ministers to answer them but i think this sort of like everyone is on call all the time thing is like wildly inefficient and it's not like the caliber of the answers you get from question period are that high anyway that i think it's like really worth it so two things two two points to make on this the first one is the, the reason i bring up prime minister's question time is because of all the parliamentary reform ones, it's the easiest one for them. Oh, yeah. For the liberals to just do. Yeah. The prime minister can just show up on Wednesdays, take all the questions, yeah. and not show up any other day. Yeah, I should say that despite my saying, like, oh, everyone's expected to, that's literally it. Like, it's just you are kind of expected to, but there's no, like, hard and fast requirement that you must come to question period. No, there are no rules. Question period is very much governed by convention. Who yeah. takes which questions, how many questions are taken who's able to ask questions are all really Yeah, and the convention's, convention. like, enforced by the speaker who, like, chooses who asks questions and stuff. So usually what happens is, like, house leaders get together and they sort of, like, have an order that they submit to the speaker and the speaker, like, calls on people in order. But in theory, you could just, like, stand up and be recognized. It just doesn't happen very often. Yeah, it's, it's fallen out of custom in the house. Yeah. Um, the, other, the other point I would, I would make here, um, and it's sort of an interesting one to consider, is that in terms of parliamentary reform... Um, I think along with this one, which is, you know, they can just implement it as they see fit any given day of the week. The other thing that they could do to reform parliament, along with some, some other measures they've taken, like uh, clapping less, is, is <laughs> yeah. to answer questions more substantively. Yeah. And this is what I think has been sort of glossed over, that the, the old joke is it's called question, uh, question question period, not answer period. period. Yeah. Um, but if the liberals are looking to reform the House and do things differently and sort of change parliamentary democracy in yeah. Canada, the, the literal simplest thing they could do is to not give inane talking points yeah. in response yeah. to questions. Well, we're really proud of the work this government is questions. doing. Yeah. So the opposition will you know, ask the sort of hot topic of the day questions, but there will also be sort of more like impassioned related to uh, MPs' writings and, and things along those lines. Yeah. And, and often MPs aren't getting substantive, or they're not getting substantive at, uh, questions back. The the sort of best example I can think of this is immigration critic uh, Michelle Rempel often asks very pointed, very poignant questions on the immigration file, and she gets like nothing in return yeah. and, except for snark. So and actually, like. I, this got all, this proposal got some airtime in the last government. I don't. I haven't really heard much about it since. And I think this might have been mentioned in a platform. Someone can fact check me and yell at me about this. But um, in Australia, the speaker is empowered to basically call you out for bad answers. Uh, you can, you can be censured or not censured, but you can basically be reprimanded for giving an insufficient or off-topic response. Yeah, the, the problem with this is that it puts a lot more weight on the speaker's shoulders. Yeah. To determine what is and isn't sure. a but like, proper response. Yeah, you're, you're right. Like, it's it very like, egregious. Yeah. It's very clear, but it's sort of the 
the, yeah. the borderline ones that you'd have to the edge th- cases. I think as a matter of course in Australia, they basically just really call out the ones that are like, you know, really, really egregious. And there's a sort of respect that, you know, they assume a good faith if it's sort of an edge case, which I think is like a fair and reasonable way to do it. That doesn't really like impugn too much on members freedom to ask, ask and answer questions in whatever way they kind of will. But also I think, I think that would be a, a reform worth exploring. Though certainly it is a bad news clip if you're the prime minister and you answer a question and the speaker says, hey, not a, not good enough, right? That looks really bad on the evening news. Especially also, like, I'm not 100% sure what the conventions for partisanship uh, for the Australian speaker is. But, like, the speaker in our system, unless it's a minority, is almost inevitably going to be a from the majority party, yeah. runs under the majority party's banner during elections, has an interest in maintaining good relationships with their caucus mates. Like, it's just, you know, they're going to kind of... like. I know it's, like, very verboten to sort of question the, like, independence of the speaker, but the fact is that the speaker, despite being hedged in by convention in very, very substantive ways on most everything they have, like, in terms of powers, is still a human being and is still an elected member of parliament under, a, you know, a party banner. banner and, and has, like, a, has a partisan affiliation. They're human. For, be- like, for better or for worse. It's not really to, like, impugn the, the, the motives of any particular speaker. It's just systemically, like, this is an issue, like, that exists. Fair enough. Okay, that, that, that wraps us for for the filibuster and procedure in House Affairs for the week. Uh, it comes up a lot. It does. Uh, that's our beat, though. We can't complain. Uh, constitutional news roundup, actually. We've got two things. Uh, there is the Free the Beer case has is going before the Supreme Court. Yes, that's, uh, that's actually pretty exciting. Yes. Um, we, so- we both love beer, so this is, this is good. <laughs> so the, it's, it's called, I'm going to call it the Como case. Yeah. Uh, so I Como, call it the Free the Beer case. So Como's a guy who's traveling from Quebec to New Brunswick, and he had with him, uh, God forbid, 14 cases of beer and three bottles of liquor. Because liquor is cheaper in Quebec than New Brunswick. And you can buy it in bigger uh, sizes. Larger quantities. You can buy the octagons in, uh, in Quebec, but not in New Brunswick. As in like 52? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they come in octagons. It's I'm, crazy. I'm not sure they sell many octagons, but here we are. Uh, so Como was traveling between these two provinces. He was stopped. And he was over his personal importation limits. Who knew to the province were, of the country where he lives. Who yes. knew that there were interprovincial importation limits? Uh, so this went to the courts. And what's, what's sort of at issue is Section 121 of the Constitution, uh, which states that any province shall be admitted... Uh, sorry, products from any province shall be admitted free into each of the other provinces. See, that sounds pretty unambiguous to me, but... You would think so. <laughs> you would think that was... That sounds kind of slam dunk to me, but... Very, very straightforward. Yeah. Uh, so shout out to the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Who? Uh, no. Who is supporting, uh, who is supporting I, they were this at case. A, they're, they're at the Manning Conference. They had a yes, pamphlet called Vaping and the Law, which told me about like everything I needed to know about Everything them. you need to know about yeah. vaping. Fedoras and you. <laughs> I actually have a great deal of respect for the work they do. Yeah, I bet. Um, so I think this case is actually really interesting because what what's really at issue here, depending on how the Supreme Court rules, is all, interprovincial trade barriers all generally. Interprovincial trade in Canada, yeah. so it will potentially like just destroy the interprovincial trade agreement if things go through. Well, and I mean, you will be able to import or sell. Not so or, much. 
whatever yeah. you want to do with your bullfrogs all across Canada. Well, I mean, yes and no, in that, like, there are some things, like occupational licensing, uh, that we sort of saw, or, like, residency requirements that don't really deal with the importation of goods that we talked about sure. in the trade agreement a couple weeks ago. Yes. I, but, I, point, point taken, yeah. there's, different, there's different things often in interprovincial agreements that go beyond the scope of... Just, like, transporting goods across tra- the border. Transporting yeah. products. That if, being said, that is yeah. a large quantity of sure. uh, what it covers. Yeah. Or, like, ownership or, like, that. anyway, yeah. There, there are some complications in that, yeah. Yeah, and, like, mobility, labor mobility, and, and, yeah. and things like that. That being said, I'm very excited for it. I hope the Supreme Court goes the right direction here. And, uh, you know, the LCBO's monopoly is... <laughs> Yeah, slash I mean, down a little bit. I think there are things where it's like within the realm of like political and economic legitimacy to say like, hey, maybe like it wouldn't be good if we just moved the entire Canadian economy to like southern Ontario, and like I kind of get where like some of the smaller provinces, especially, are coming on this kind of thing. But the poster children are so bad, you know, for for interpersonal trade stuff, where it's like the liquor monopolies, like and especially the beer store here in Ontario. Which is like this so like that, oligopolistic co-op run by these massive breweries. So is th- like this is my bad. question. So my question is, if this has to allow the you know the free movement of alcohol, will it extend to requiring the LCBO to sell alcohol from other provinces a lot more liberally? Or will it just be like the personal importation? That's a good, I don't see how it would. And once again, like I should add the qualifier here. Big asterisk. We are not lawyers. Uh, nor trade specialists. Nor trade specialists. So take what we're saying with a grain of salt. Um, but I do not see how that would apply if it's basically saying like there should be no duties. It doesn't really like, force anyone to sell anything. Right? Like I just – I don't really see it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, we'll, we'll leave it here on this one. I know you're hopeful. I know you're hopeful. I, I am <laughs> hopeful. I'm, I'm very hopeful. I, I understand it, Yen. Like, I wish that the LCBO my, were better, too. My, but... my best case scenario here is Beverly McLaughlin declares that uh, the, L- the LCBO must now carry beer from all across Canada in as large a quantity as, as we desire as Yeah, citizens. just stuff it to the gills <laughs> full of craft beer. That would be ideal. I agree. But uh, probably not actually within the cards here, unfortunately. So we'll sit tight on that one. Something uh, something interesting to watch. And honestly, Etienne, the thing with interpersonal trade barriers, though, is that, like, who will watch out for the bullfrogs and the wild rice if they were all to go? What eats bullfrogs? Uh, larger bullfrogs? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Raccoons? Like, I don't know. Yeah, they are. They eat like no, 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 sorry, sorry. Uh, cannibals. Cannibals. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, we should probably not get bogged down. Bull, in... Bullfrog tongue's not good for catching other bullfrogs. <laughs> bullfrog minutia. Mm-hmm. Um, we are and... we are not nor claim to be bullfrog specialists. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another another thing that came up with the Constitution this last week and last kind of week and a half is uh, Section thirty three of the Constitution, which is tell the, me, uh, tell me, dear Laura, what is Section thirty three? Section thirty three is the notwithstanding clause, which allows any level of government to basically say, like, notwithstanding the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, we are going to pass a law that would otherwise be in contravention of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Um, and it basically applies for five years, and then the, the province or federal government would have to repass that legislation. So it's kind of a safety valve sort of thing if, like, the, the idea – and actually, this, this is an interesting thing because it's an interesting sort of, like, um, history of the discourse and intellectual history and argument about uh, why we have this. And uh, I think we can talk a little bit at the 30,000-foot level about kind of the distinction between the notions of uh, parliamentary and constitutional sovereignty. 
So in the tradition of parliamentary sovereignty, which I think it's fair to say the conservative tradition in Canada tends to be sympathetic towards, uh, from, you know, uh, John McDonald to um, Stephen Baker and onwards, uh, there's a notion that the judiciary should have a restrained role in developing uh, jurisprudence, should, like, respect case law and defer to the legislature as much as they can. Um, and in the liberal tradition, there's more of a conception of the courts as defender of individual rights, and that's why we have the charter. Uh, I, I should note that there are sort of like, you know, there are obviously, this isn't 100% in either direction. I mean, Shades of grass. yeah, and D, like, Johnny McDonald is behind the original 1867 Constitution. Diefenbaker got us the, the Bill of Rights in the 1950s that kind of morphed into the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, so this is to say that it's absolutely clear-cut in either direction. Yep. But yeah, in, in the conservative intellectual tradition in Canada, there has been a skepticism towards letting the courts do everything and a more fondness for reserving powers to the legislature and giving them the power to override the courts if need be. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, the, the liberals are, small liberals, are less enamored of this. Uh, so in the last week and a half, we've had a court case in Saskatchewan, where this, the, the one of the courts in the province, I actually don't remember which court, sorry, uh, basically was, was, said... Was it the Ninth Circuit? <laughs> nice. That's a U.S. <laughs> court. It's, yeah, and they have no jurisdiction here. It's a, it's a Trump joke. Uh, yeah, a very liberal di- or circuit court. Anyway, um, they have basically said that Catholic schools, and Saskatchewan, like some other provinces, have has um, publicly funded and established Catholic school boards... Uh, that the Catholic school boards cannot accept non-Catholic students, that they have to have, like, a baptism certificate, which conveniently I have, so I could go to Catholic school in Saskatchewan. Um, but otherwise, yeah, so this is this is bad because, as you could probably guess, lots of non-Catholic students go to Catholic schools in Saskatchewan, as they do in Ontario, as they do in other provinces that have them. Yeah. So this is kind of a, a problem. Um, the easiest way would be to basically just change the eligibility requirements um, and just say, like, Catholic schools can accept anyone. And then that would go through the provincial legislature and then through the federal parliament, and that would basically amend the constitution. Um, because when you have federal or amendments to the constitution that only touch one province, you only have to get it through that province's legislature and then the federal parliament, as opposed to uh, like matters that touch more than one province, in which case the amending formula applies, and that's a whole other kettle of fish. Uh, but instead, Brad Wall, Premier of Saskatchewan, who we know and love, uh, has decided to go the route of the notwithstanding clause and say, like, we're going to basically pass a law that says, like, notwithstanding the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and the, the court's decision, Catholic schools have to accept everyone. Which is, like, as far as things go, a pretty benign use of it. Uh, but you can see why, like, casualized use of Section 33 is, like, it, it's not a... It's kind of like a break a glass in case of kind of thing. And it's not used very often for the reason that it's considered quite contentious. And when legislative or, like, amending options exist that are not very high overhead and, like, would actually be pretty feasible to do, because I think everyone can agree that, like, a court case made on charter grounds that basically has the effect of completely destabilizing a province's education system is, like, not really the point of, like, charter, like, cases and protecting people's individual rights and freedoms. Yeah, it seems like a very, very inconvenient ruling for everyone. Yeah. And I think that's also one of the reasons why uh, Brad Wall is opting to go so heavy on the notwithstanding clause immediately. Yeah. Because, uh, as I've read, they don't want the precedent to be set in a higher court. Yeah. Court, like the Supreme Court, where that would then apply to all the provinces. Yeah. So right now, the decision is only limited to Saskatchewan. Yeah. And it's been going through the courts for like 10 plus years. 
So they could drag it out and risk it applying and screwing up everyone's school system across Canada. Yeah. Or they could notwithstanding it and just be done with it and throw yeah. this stupid decision that said, into, into the into the garbage. The amending thing is actually the easiest way to do it. I just think it's less dramatic. Which actually I think is important. We'll come back to that. Because the other use of the notwithstanding clause or putative use is Lisa Raitt, who has been a... Lisa Raitt is a use of the yeah. notwithstanding clause. Well, Lisa Raitt, who has been a pretty, like, considered one of the, like, moderate, sort of, like, reasonable candidates in the conservative leadership race, has come out saying that she would use the notwithstanding clause to force pipelines through. And when people asked her, like, well, what does that mean? Because it's, like, otherwise not really in their jurisdiction. Uh... It's that she would use it to, like, override the charter right to protest of protesters. Free freedom of assembly. Yeah. Like some, of, some of those ones, probably. So that, like, they can get kicked in the head by horses, I guess. Uh, no, I think it was uh, just so they can, like, quash the protests yeah. quicker. Which seems, like, not great. I don't know. Like, it, I think if, if you heard tomorrow, like, President Erdogan of Turkey today, like... Or like suspended is a part of the constitution that enables like protesters to assemble peacefully. Is like you'd be like, well, that really doesn't sound good. Yeah, it's not really a move you'd expect. You'd expect. Uh, from yeah, the it was very from the prime minister of Canada at no. any any given time. So yeah. I, I think what we have here is a, War a great uh, a great contrast between different uses of the notwithstanding clause. Yeah, a reasonable use and an unreasonable well, use. Yes and no, in that I think, like, Brad Wall is correct, and it kills me to say that, but Brad Wall is correct that, like, the case is bad and that, like, the, the the province should find a way to, like, you know, nullify it in some way, but I think the, like, legislative amending route is the best way to do it because Section 33 is, like, kind of playing with fire, especially when there is an obvious alternative, and in Lisa Raitt's case, it just seems to be, like, I don't even know, like, it's not like she's making a, like, a lot of people's ballots are already in for the leadership race. Like, so the it strikes me as very out of character. The history of Section 3, I think, is interesting because you can, you can find quotes from Pierre Trudeau, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, um, talking about Section 33, the notwithstanding clause, and envisioning it as something that was used, like, fairly regularly. Yeah. Like, every, every now and again, and instead, it has become... Break glass um, if, yeah. Break glass in case of emergency, with the exception of Quebec, which has done it a couple times. Yeah. Well, Alberta, I think, has done it once or twice as well. Alberta never has. Never mind. Uh, Ralph Klein had discussed it in regards oh, to gay marriage yes. once, once upon a time, right. but that never went anywhere. Right, right, right. Um, so I believe it's only Quebec uh, today yeah, Quebec that used, used it for Bill 101. For, yeah, it's Bill 101, yeah. For their language requirements. Yeah. Um, which is their Quebec sign law. Among other things, it's not just well, the signs. Yes, M most significantly, it's or most well known, most prominently, it's making French the language of business in in Quebec. And we can well, argue about Bill One Hundred One. This one's actually time. interesting because I've I've studied a little bit. Um, Quebec got actually overruled by the United Nations at one point on this. Like it went it went to a human rights complaint at the United Nations. Well, like what authority does the UN have to like tell anyone to do anything? It's the authority that the UN has, which is the scolding authority, but <laughs> Quebec obeyed it. Mm. And it was that, uh, it, if, if I'm not mistaken, initially started out as you could only have French on signs, and then it went to the UN, it's human rights complaint, and then they came back and they said, you can have other languages, they just have to be smaller and right, right, right. Than, than French. So my, my take on this right now is that it seems like basically conservative leaders are kind of using Section 33 in a like way to look tough 
or like decisive even when like other options exist or in Lisa Raitt's case like just like what the hell are you doing that's incredibly ghoulish and bad so let's be politically cynical on this one um well brad wall it's like basically he gets to play like mr provinces and mr saskatchewan against the like the the mean courts and the mean federal government so i i very much support brad wall's use of it um however with lisa Raitt, i think what you're seeing is sort of a 11th hour shot very 11th hour an 11th hour shot from the blue line for a three-point throw (laughs) Nice. <laughs> um, this guy loves sports <laughs> so so much because she doesn't. Uh, she's been underperforming, oh my and God, she's yeah. she's looking for something um, that will perhaps win her some points in yeah. Western Alberta or in Western Canada in Alberta, sort of the prairies. And so, taking the sudden hardest approach to pipelines of any other well, candidate. pipelines, protesters, the federal government. It's like the three like totems of like conservative sentiment in canada the triumphant yeah they're really the three things they really dislike well i mean they like the pipelines but you know totems of strong emotional resonance basically absolutely so she's yeah. she's going all in she's trying to play her last cards yeah in a, a desperate in a desperate play to maybe pick up a couple more points i think she will regret having done this it will probably dog her I mean, I had a quite a while into the future. I had a pretty good opinion of Lisa Raitt, like all things considered, but like this kind of sours that. I mean, like, and you know, what does Lisa Raitt care if a new Democrat doesn't like her? But like, it it is very out of character. Yeah, I was pretty um, surprised. It, it sort of goes against her like persona and like brand and sort yeah, of just yeah many... the way she comports herself in public has always been very restrained. And I remember when we went to the Manning conference uh, and like they had the debate there. Yeah, and she was up on stage with Maxine Bernier. Her whole thing was basically like, okay, whoa, let's slow down and be reasonable and let's think about this and like your, you know, your policies have real world implications and let's like, you know, think things through. And this just seems to be the polar opposite of that. I'm just very surprised. So you're not putting Lisa Raitt on your I'm ballot? I'm probably right? not putting Lisa Raitt on my ballot that I don't have. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that'll wrap it up for the constitutional news roundup uh, for, for this week. It's the first time that we've done that and probably the last time that we'll do that. Uh, but yeah, interesting stuff. Um, Etienne has a story to share. Oh, a staffer writes. So this is this is from our mailbag. Yeah. Ooh. Laurent went and picked up the mail today and we had this lovely staffer letter. Um, so staffer writes, help. My MP has promised or has uh, announced to do a Canada 150 award, awarding 150 sort of citizenship, volunteer, like good goodwill awards throughout the community. Um, and the deadline to apply is coming up in a week. We've had two applications <laughs> today. What do I do? So first thing you gotta do is you gotta multiply that by 75. What do you, what do you mean? Like you just gotta find, no, I'm kidding, like you're screwed. <laughs> you're not gonna find. <laughs> 148 people. So you put up the press release saying, we're going to give out 150 awards, apply now. This is classic MP constituency problem. Yeah. It was being overambitious as to the amount of participation you're going to get from the community. Yeah, because, okay, not to put too fine a point on it, a lot of MPs have, have pretty big heads, and they think that people, like, sit down, it's like, oh, everyone, uh, the family, gather around. Our MP's 10%er is here. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, let's read what it says. <laughs> Quick, sit down by the fire. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, suffice it to say that that is not the case. Uh, people do not read ten percenters and householders. Uh, so. so my advice, when you have, uh, you need to fill what one hundred and forty-eight award spots, is you, 
You know, you give out 50 awards for the last 50 people who came and got their passports renewed. <laughs> 50 awards for the last people who brought their immigration cases to you, like the award for immigration Excellence. perseverance. Yeah. <laughs> like, depending on which way things went, perhaps a consolation. Um, you got to start inflating those numbers at some point. Yeah. It's, it's sort of tough when you do this, like, public... Just walk in, walk in the door on accident because you thought it was your dentist. There you go. Like, public announcement, and then... So, say you get 20 people. Yeah. And then you, you do, like, a little, like, maybe a dinner, maybe some sort of little award ceremony called the local media. And maybe their first question is going to be, where's the other 130 <laughs> recipients? Yeah. Oh, you know, um, we, we had trouble finding some people. We couldn't get a place big enough to fit all of them. They're, theirs are in the mail. They weren't available to attend today. Yeah. Um, yeah, so th- that's a, a little object lesson about MPs and their hubris. So if you're ever a staffer and your MP wants to like do something extravagant or big that you think, like, this doesn't sound like something we can actually pull off given our resources and time frame, let them know. That's your job. <laughs> <laughs> And sometimes you lose that argument, and then you just have to make the best of it. But yeah. this is this is life on the hill. Yeah. Uh, to wrap up today, we actually have an interview uh, with the leader of the Ontario Green Party, Mike Schreiner, who who joined me uh, on Monday for for a ten minute interview. Uh, but before we actually roll that, we want to talk about like what makes a good political interview and kind of what the like incentives are for for each side of that mic, um, so to speak. Yeah. So for actually... us. We wanted to talk to him because he's a fairly unique experience of running a small party that is nevertheless visible, like public. It's the Green Party, like it has a sort of like national brand and like resonance. People get what the Green Party is, um, even though they don't have any seats. But people know. So we yeah, want to so talk to him about like, what is it like running a small party? Like, how do you build up? Like, what's the sort of like you know like you, the political what do you management do every day? Yeah, the political management angle. Like, how do you sort of like build up? How do you get into the media cycle? Uh, and Mike Schreiner is currently on tour, or like was at least when I talked to him. He may have wrapped up by now. Uh, about you know certain green issues and you know meeting up with local activists and that kind of thing. How many so, veggies to eat every day? Yeah. <laughs> classic green things. So he for him the incentive is to basically just talk about the stuff that he's on tour about. Um, so when you listen to this interview, uh, just keep that in mind that we are two sides basically with with different. Incentives. I, it's, incentives. It's, it's and... different incentives. So when you uh, when you get that media request saying, "Hey, would your boss like to do an interview?" Yeah. The uh, the first thing you should consider is what is your strategic objective? Yeah. In taking this interview, what is your cost benefit? What are you, What are you going to get out of it? What yeah. do you What's your best case scenario for this interview? Yeah. Is there a policy you're pushing? Is there something you're trying to promote? It can be defensive. It can be saying, I'm trying to do damage control on yeah. this. To give uh, an example of one you won't want to do, if your boss gets one saying, and say you have a social, cons- uh, like a soft social conservative MP who's against abortion, and you get a random one from a, a random email from a journalist saying, let's talk about your boss's perspectives on abortion. You're going to look at that interview that interview request and you say, eh, No. <laughs> this will cause a lot more issues than it's worth. We're, yeah. not, we're not trying. We're not pushing anything. We yeah. have very little to gain. The social conservative uh, community already knows. We don't need a whole bunch of fresh quotes and be put in sort of this awkward situation being, yeah. being pushed on these views right now when it's not in the media cycle. It, it might just cause problems for my party. So that one you decline. 
Um, but there's other ones where maybe, maybe there's somewhere in between or you can take an opportunity to find a positive spin on it and really push out your message. Yeah. If you have a private member's bill and you're, uh, you've been asked by a journalist to do sort of a personality profile or a profile of your, uh, your boss, then you say, sure, and then you work that in as your message. And, and this you is... keep bringing it up. You talk <laughs> about why it inspired you. You yeah. talk about, like, you, you wrap it yeah. in every single question. And as you listen to this interview, I think you'll, you will find it quite clear that this is, in fact, what happened. Um, and, and props to Mike Schreiner for having a, a good grasp on, on media technique. And, uh, I mean, to be fair to myself, I feel a little bit of a need to defend myself here because we did not get the conversation I wanted to have, which is fine. Uh, I, I am not a journalist. I have not been like trained to interview people. Uh, I'm actually I'm better on the other side. Um, yeah, so uh, it was a battle of wills, Laura. It was a battle of wills, and yeah, to be in also in fairness to me, it was like basically like in front of a, a small live audience of Green Party supporters. So I didn't really want to be like a dick, uh, but yeah, no, uh, it, it is it is fun, and uh, give give it a listen. You'll appreciate kind of. With that in, like, listen to that with this discussion in mind, and I think you'll 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 have a good laugh. Yeah, I think it was uh, having listened to it. I think it was very well done on his part. I think he steered the conversation exactly <laughs> where he wanted to go, and it was it was yeah, artfully folks, done. Folks, I don't mind telling you, I got owned. So <laughs> uh, we'll roll that for you right now. Mike Schreiner, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, my pleasure. So, Mike Schreiner is the leader of the, the Green Party of Ontario, or the Ontario Green Party. I don't know which... Yeah, Green, Party Ontario. Green Party of Ontario. Either way is fine, though. So, I want to talk to you mostly because um, being a leader of a small party, of any party, is, mm-hmm. is an enormous challenge, just logistically. Like, you have to travel all over the province, you have to meet with people, you have to make everybody happy, which, is you know, in party politics is always difficult. So, I want to talk to you just a little bit about, like, your background, how you got into party politics, how you became leader, and um, we'll, we'll delve into those uh, subjects a little more in detail once uh, we've gone through Sure, that. yeah, absolutely. Well, my background is I'm a green business owner. I started one of Ontario's first local organic food businesses over 22 years ago in Guelph and uh, still in business today, uh, delivering fresh local organic food to people's homes. I also started an organic food production business in Guelph that was quite successful and ran that for a number of years uh, before moving on into the NGO sector and did a lot of work uh, starting an organization called Local Food Plus, uh, promoting local sustainable food and agriculture. And both my businesses and the NGO I ran uh, were award-winning you know, businesses and NGOs. And so at some point I started singing, hey, you know, I've always been interested in politics my whole life. Uh, which party do I want to get involved with? And the Green Party just seemed like the obvious place for me because, mm-hmm. you know, as I looked around, I thought, you know, there are two parties of big business and one party of no business and we need a party of small business. And the Green Party seemed to be that business and or that party and uh, and given my interest in environmentalism and green policies and in particular I was very concerned about just the lack of um, policies around climate change mm-hmm. and the Green Party was the party that spoke to me so I started volunteering started getting involved and the more I did it I, I was asked to be the candidate in a by-election and I did fairly well got third place uh, which at that time for Greens was pretty good and so the leader at the time, Frank DeYoung, who'd been the leader for 16 years, really encouraged me to think about running for leader of the party. And people felt that having somebody who was a successful business owner, but also uh, an environmentalist mm-hmm. would be a nice combination. So I put my name forward and I was elected in 2009 and been loving the job ever since. Okay, so uh, how does that like tend to go? Like, what's, What does kind of your typical week look like as, as the leader of a party that uh, unfortunately does have no seat yeah. in the legislature? You don't have to... 
schedule yourself around the legislative calendar. That's right. Really as much. No, I'm still at Queens Park uh, at least one day a week, uh, and I use that opportunity to be at question period and to speak with the media. Uh, we also do a bit of social media while I'm there, and then the rest of my time oftentimes is spent uh, working on issue campaigns where we're you know knocking on doors or doing media events or attending events where we're trying to engage and mobilize people around issues that we care about. Oh, that's interesting. And we've been incredibly effective at moving legislation and policies at Queen's Park. So a concrete example of that is we really led the charge last year to get big money out of politics. And uh, really, I think, unprecedented uh, for a party without a seat at Queen's Park. Mm-hmm. We helped write the legislation. We spent a lot of time um, shepherding the legislation through committee. I spent quite a bit of time meeting with the other party leaders and kind of being the honest mediator between various parties to stick handle and shepherd that legislation forward and you know i'm proud to say now that corporate and union donations are banned in ontario donation limits have been reduced significantly and ontario has some of the best campaign finance laws of anywhere in north america now and the green party you know took the lead in that and a number of other issues around protecting our water pricing carbon pollution and things like that and so in some ways much of my day is spent um, in grassroots mobilization, engaging yeah. and mobilizing people around issues, and uh, and then you know, I'm doing what I'm I do a fair amount of what I'm doing right now, which is touring around the province. So I've been visiting all regions of Ontario, uh, and mostly kind of listening to issues people care about and how we can take action on those issues at Queen's Park. Interesting. So the way you describe that sounds almost like, and you come from the NGO world, it almost sounds like an advocacy campaign that you'd run as, yeah, as in an some NGO. Ways, in some ways, you're we're, you know, a bit like an NGO yeah. that you can vote for, right. <laughs> so to speak. And I, mean, I think that's something that, I think even political parties with seats, mm-hmm. particularly opposition parties, and not so much for governing yeah. parties, but I think for opposition parties, I'm, my recommendation would be that if you're in opposition, Instead of only just opposing, which is really a lot of what the conservatives and the NDP do, you know, they could also use that um, their position to leverage that into actually advocacy mm-hmm. work. And so, even when we have a seat at Queens Park, you know, my plan is to still uh, engage in advocacy work. Yeah. And I think that's sort of a new way of doing politics that people want. I think people are tired of politics where it's like you oppose to oppose, yeah. or you're playing political games, and you're only. You know, parties are only you know operating in ways that are in their political self-interest, yeah. rather than putting the public first and working collaboratively and cooperatively with other parties. And so, I think that's one of the new ways of doing politics that the Green Party brings to the table is I'm willing to work cooperatively and collaboratively with any party um, to advance a policy agenda. And I think that's what really motivates most Green Party members and supporters. Okay, that's yeah, and certainly I've noticed uh, like in Alberta the last couple of years, there's been a trend towards uh, whenever a budget comes out saying where's the alternative budget, so there's Absolutely. A, more of a desire for yeah. a sort of constructive opposition or at least Absolutely. Sort of not just knee-jerk yeah. opposition. So yeah, I, I think I agree that I, you you've, know, you've read that pretty well. Well, thank you, I appreciate <laughs> that. I mean, Andrew Weaver, who's the BC Green right. leader, who, you know, is MLA now, same way with Peter Baker, David Kuhn have certainly operated that way. Obviously, Elizabeth May mm-hmm. here on Parliament Hill has operated that way. And um, I think other parties are probably trying to take notice yeah. that there are different ways that you can be an opposition party and yeah. there are constructive ways you can be an opposition party. Yeah, and especially as a small opposition party, I think there's the added bonus that you then have a different, there's a different sound coming from your corner than the other opposition parties. Absolutely. Maybe you have a bit more freedom yeah. uh, to be a different kind of party. But, uh, you know, the thing I always tell our members and supporters is that if you want me to play the 
typical political game, don't vote for me. Because <laughs> right. we don't want to play that game. We want to change that game. And I think increasingly that's what people want. They want a party that's all about honesty, integrity, and putting policies that work for people first mm-hmm. ahead of their own self-interest or own um, self-partisan you know, partisan interest. Sure. So you, you brought up your members and supporters there, which I think is a, is a good segue to actually building the organization of a party mm-hmm. that can compete in you know all of Ontario's writings, or at least most of them. Uh, how do you find that process? Like, wh- how, what does that involve for you? What does that involve for your office? I, yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I was like, I'm so, kind of not sure. So in, some ways, so in some respects, I've approached it in the same way that I've approached building my businesses and building the nonprofits I've helped start. From a very entrepreneurial perspective, how do you build capacity? Sure. And what are the metrics to measure building capacity? And I think that's something we've been really effective at. Like, So our database of members and supporters have grown. Our fundraising has grown exponentially, uh, which has given us the capacity to then, I think, compete electorally. And so that's been and, – and also the issue campaigns we've been running, I think part of the reason we've been so successful now – is that we've built the capacity and we've leveraged that capacity into pushing for the policies that we care about, our supporters care about at Queen's Park. Uh, and so now, you know, when I first became leader, you know, the party had one part-time staff person. Now we have, I think, four or five full-time staff people. Yeah. Uh, and so that not only helps us, will help us compete successfully electorally, but it also helps us uh, with our issue campaigns. Sure. So of your, of your time in a given week, kind of circle back around to that, like, Percentage-wise, do you think like how much between like advocacy, between party building, capacity building, kind of stuff, fundraising? I know that's always important. Uh, is there sort of a split on that that it's typical week t- tends to take, or does it fluctuate pretty wildly? You know, it fluctuates a bit. So right now, I would say probably evenly split. And I also do a fair amount of writing too. So I, I write some write regular columns. I do a lot of I write maybe most of our press releases and things like that. So unlike other party leaders, that's because we don't have a huge staff. I do a lot of that myself, um, so that takes a bit of time as well. But I would say outside of a RIP period, um, that's pretty well evenly split. Mm-hmm. And then there are some times of the year where that'll shift. So, you know, most organizations, their big fundraising time of the year is, you know, October, November, and December especially. So during that time of the year, I'm certainly focused more on fundraising. Um, I would say during spring and fall I probably put more attention to issue advocacy and issue campaigns because sure. that's when the legislature is sitting and so that's when you can be the most effective in terms of doing that and then um, the summer months and sort of off period months when Queen Park Park's not sitting um, a bit more party building uh, and then right now obviously doing a leaders tour around the province um, most of that's is focused on party building so I would say over the course of a year it's relatively evenly split mm-hmm. but it's concentrated in different ways during certain times of the year that makes a lot of sense yeah um, if you had to give a piece of advice to a leader of a small party provincially or federally uh, what would that one piece of advice be you know I think um, the biggest piece of advice is to ident- listen to people identify issues they really care about and then champion those issues and be a voice for those issues. I think one of the things that has really led to the growth of the GPO is that we're speaking out on issues that um, people were concerned about and looking for political leadership on. So whether it's you know fighting a quarry that threatens farmland and water, or um, you know standing up for protecting bees uh, from neonicotinoid pesticides, which is an issue campaign we've run, or pushing hard on an issue like. Uh, pricing carbon due to mm-hmm. people's concerns around climate change. 
Um, that's what we've really done. But a lot of it's come from like listening to what people want us to talk about sure. and then being their champion while at the same time holding true to our values and our vision for what the kind of place we want Ontario to be. Excellent. Mike Treiner, thanks so much. And by the way, congratulations on being able to go right back to the, the policy points. <laughs> Absolutely. I have great respect for that. <laughs> well, I appreciate the opportunity and I'm happy to chat anytime. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks so much, so much to Mike Schreiner for coming on the program and owning me today. Uh, that was well appreciated. Uh, we should actually also clarify, he, uh, his team reached out to us to, to be on the podcast, which is super appreciated. And if you are someone who is on a party leaders uh, like media staff and you want to interview or you want to be interviewed, like reach out. It'll be fun. We'll have a beer. Sure. Uh, we'll interview your boss. Uh, it'll be a good time. Uh, so thanks so much for listening this week. Once again, uh, follow us on Twitter at ShortPantsPod. Leave us those uh, reviews and ratings on iTunes. Yeah, that's uh, my they, job. That's my job for oh, of that. Sorry, Etienne. Although apparently I didn't do my job very well last week. No, yeah. Oh, they, they warm our hearts when we see them. Uh, some of them are, are quite kind and it's appreciated. Um, that, that, that should be it for, for this coming week. Uh, I am away in Seattle, so we will we will try and get an episode next weekend but no guarantees yeah uh, i think uh, i've got my first solo interview coming up next yeah week, and so that's right. stay tuned for that stay tuned and uh thanks so much for listening and uh until next time given this information i'm happy to say that this 55th meeting finally stands adjourned it's adjourned i said put in order before you pull that shit we are not adjourned or suspended that's bullshit we're that dead. is bullshit!